Remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, and we'll be looking at verses 16 to 23 today. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of God. Let's pray and thank him for that. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We ask now that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts and our lives. Take it, take the word that's proclaimed today and massage it, work it in, Lord. Transform our minds uh, like a surgeon, Lord, cut away so that we can hear and understand that our lives can be changed into the image of Christ. Thank you for the the power of your word, that it is like a double-edged sword, that it is able to do this work, and we pray that you would use it to that end by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So Paul, as he continues in the letter, uh, you may remember for those of you who were with us last week, uh, began with an initial warning to the Colossian believers. And today we look at the second and third uh, warning in this particular section. Remember, Paul is going after these false teachers who have come into town, and they're bringing with them added regulations and attempts to, to get more of God, to, to get fullness with God or of God. And he issues the first warning, let no one take you captive, let no one kidnap you, and is, is the idea that he expressed there. And today, we look at no one pass judgment on you as the first one, and let no one disqualify you. The heart of what he's getting at is something that we can identify with, because there is this little legalist inside of all of us. And every time that I say that, there's always smiles and nods of heads, which means at least I'm not the only one. Maybe there's just a few of us here that struggle with that, this little legalist that wants to earn it, that wants to perform, that wants to do, that wants to somehow justify himself or herself before God. We're all bent this way. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, here's a list of things. We like lists, don't we? You know, give me the list. Tell me what to do. Give me the one, two, three. Because then, in some sense, I can measure it, I can complete it, I can be done with it, and I can move on. But this, of course, is not the work of the gospel. We live in a world that believes in you you get get what you deserve. We almost, we wouldn't necessarily use the word karma, although some do. You know, it's that idea that, hey, if, if you do good things, good things will come your way. And if you do bad things, you know, watch out, because something is going to get you. 
But grace is so counterintuitive to this idea. Uh, The grace of the gospel says just the opposite, that in your trespasses and sins, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, while you were enemies with God, Christ Jesus died for you. And you are credited with his righteousness. But yet we still fight it. We can say, yeah, that's what I believe, but do we not struggle when bad things do come our way, when difficulties come our way, that we struggle with thoughts like, you know, is God mad at me? Is he getting me back? Is it, am I paying for something that I've done? Or on the flip side, if we've done a few good things, you know, we check a few boxes, I've done my quiet time, I, I gave some money in the offering plate, I, I spent time in prayer this morning, that somehow God owes us a good and comfortable life. But the grace of the gospel tells us something completely different, that it's not based on our merits, on things that we do. We're not performing. And so these false teachers that were coming in trying to add these things on top of the gospel had to be rooted out. And these were Paul's strong words to them. Now, we do have to be careful not to lift this passage out of its context. We have to remember what we've already heard in Colossians so far and also what we're going to hear. This isn't a license to sin. Let no one judge you. Let no one disqualify you. Paul said elsewhere that grace doesn't exist so that sin should abound, right? This isn't a license to sin or to to live a, a licentious life, but rather the grace of the gospel changes us. It transforms us. It takes what we once desired and shapes it, changes it, transforms it to desire the things that God desires. He works at the heart level. doesn't happen all at once. So sometimes this is where the temptation comes in. We kind of want to take a shortcut to get there. And we think that somehow if we do stuff, God will be happy with us when God has already found complete satisfaction and pleasure in the person and the work of Christ on our behalf. And that is where we have to rest. Not adding things on, not trying to do things. So let's begin looking at these first two warn- or these second and third warnings. rather. Um, the first is, is, let no one pass judgment on you in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. So far, Paul, his, his work against these false teachers has, have, have, has been primarily broad generalizations, but here he begins to get very, very specific. That they're burdening them with these specifics, something to do with food and drink and, and festivals and so forth. And what he's expressing here is that no one should pressure you In the sense, no one should pass judgment. No one pressure you into doing things or not doing things. Somehow claiming that you'll be more, that these will somehow fulfill God and that you'll be more fulfilled in the process. That's what the false teachers were doing. Typically by denying certain food and drink and by adding in the keeping of these festivals. Now, we don't know all of the details, but the pattern that we see, and at least in other letters as well, these were Greek background believers. So these were people who had probably very little or a pagan idea, very little understanding of religion or a pagan idea of religion. And often when we see the Judaizers come in or we look at at 
epistles that were written to Jewish background believers, we understand the dynamic that they were transitioning from a, you know, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, that they had this system of worship and they had these practices, and it was difficult for those to let go. And most likely, these false teachers that were coming in were bringing some of these Judaizer kind of ideas. So if you would imagine your whole life, uh, you've lived a certain way, and you come to faith in Christ, and then these these teachers who claim some kind of superiority come into town and they start saying things like, you know, no more pork chops or, or no more bacon. I mean, that's where it would have had to end for me right there, right? I mean, that's, you know, we, we can do a lot of things. No pepperoni pizza, no lobster, no shrimp. You know, all of these external things that were forbidden under the old covenant. And then adding on top of that, now you need to start having, attending these festivals, these services that were a part of God's law to the Jews. Paul gathers all of these things, things that were commanded by God to, to the nation of Israel, and he states the Colossians were not to be pressured into doing these things. Because what the false teachers were doing was connecting the observance of these things to salvation at worst, or at best, they were connecting it to the idea that somehow this was going to gain you fullness with God. But both of these ideas are wrong, because these accomplishments, these things that they did, even under the old covenant, never earned salvation. All of these things were pointing to something, and Paul tells us what it is here. In verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if a light is, a, is behind something that is approaching you and you were looking down at the ground, you would see the shadow before you see the object. Um, or if you think of you know, sci-fi movies when the alien ships are coming to earth, you, know, you always see the, the, the shadow along the buildings as these massive ships are coming as the sun creates this shadow. That's kind of the picture not the alien spaceship, but that's kind of the picture that Paul is painting here of Christ. The ceremonial laws, the civil laws, all the dietary rules that came with the ceremonial laws were pointing to something. They were showing something, and that something is Christ. The shadow were all these these things that they had been participating in. And so... What Paul is saying is, you're out of the shadow lands now. Don't go back to the shadow lands. The, the, the lands of just things that, that are, have been reflected. Go after the substance. Go after Christ. In a sense, the book of Hebrews teaches this throughout its entirety. And it was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and so we can understand that. And as I mentioned, we can be sympathetic to the fact that Jews who had come to faith in Jesus as Messiah certainly would have missed the the tangibility of, of, of worship, you know, the temple worship. You would go in, you had sights and sounds and smells, and there were, there were things that had, had been a part of, since birth of the worship process. And you knew that your uh, fathers and mothers from generations past had worshipped in this same way. There were the smells of the sacrifices. You imagined what it was like. You saw the priests going in and out on your behalf and the atonement imaged in the sacrifice itself. And you imagined what it was like inside the holy place with the lampstand and the table of showbread and then, and especially in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And to, to, to step away from all that, we can understand why Jews would have had a hard time 
letting go. It was, in a sense, uh, difficult for Jews to do it, but for Greeks now to have that imposed on them, it becomes even stranger. Even the restrictions that were added on at the Sabbath, you know, the We see the Sabbath and the moral law. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there were many additional man-made rabbinical laws that were added onto the Sabbath, things that people could and could not do. So while you can understand while Jews may have wanted to keep up with what felt to them like, although it was commanded by God, their, their traditions, their family traditions, the point of Hebrews and Paul's point here is that all of this was just a shadow. The Messiah has now come and has accomplished all that these things point to. That lampstand, that altar, that Ark of the Covenant, that table of showbread, that covering, all the imagery that we see in temple worship was fulfilled in Christ. They didn't need to stay there, and they certainly didn't need to go back there. There was no more requirement for these things. It did not earn God's favor. Now, as I mentioned, we saw the Sabbath there, and we still make mention of the Sabbath today. So what's happening here? Let me, let me mention a few things. The particular restrictions that, were, that we and these Colossians were free from were all of the rabbinic laws that had been added onto. I don't know if you know this, but there's a rabbinical law that says you can't write or erase on the Sabbath. And yet some of you might take notes, right? We don't have a problem with that. There's there's a law that says you can't light or extinguish a fire. And many Jews today won't turn on an incandescent light bulb for that reason. In fact, I'm not even sure how it got in my suggested feed, but Amazon regularly tries to sell me these little things that go over the switch plate on the wall to keep you from accidentally, you put it over the switch plate on Sabbath, you know, to keep you from accidentally turning the light on. These These extra things were not under these laws. But in the moral law of God, we see the command to honor the Sabbath, to keep it, to keep it holy. And because God's moral law reveals His character, who He is, and He is unchanging, we still honor the Sabbath. We keep this day holy. It pleases Him, but it also is for our benefit. Not just for our protection, but it actually helps us in our life. And we certainly understand this with do not steal, uh, do not murder, do not lie, because we don't want those things done unto us. But to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, to set this day aside in a commitment to worship to God, but also to rest, um, there's a lot of scientific studies now that show that that's actually a healthy thing that we not work seven days a week. So there's benefit for us beyond that God, this is what pleases God. And so we set this day aside. We also see that God set the pattern for this in creation. The almighty, all-powerful God made the universe, and on the seventh day he rested, setting this pattern that is for us, and so we continue to do this. Of course, in all of this is still great freedom. And many godly Christians throughout history have come to differing opinions on what this looks like. And so I would encourage you to prayerfully consider what Paul is warning here and what he's exhorting here, that you not allow your heart or your mind to be, your conscience to be bound 
by the influence of those who would come in claiming a greater superiority spiritually. But at the same time, don't be dismissive either. Don't think that God's freedom that he's offered you in Christ means that you can live just any way that you want. I mean, as we'll see in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll see how actually what appears to be freedom, because what we really want as humans is autonomy. We just don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And what, how that actually becomes enslaving. It becomes something that captures our hearts and our minds and even our bodies to the point that we cannot break free. And so the freedom that is in Christ looks a certain way, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. But remember this, that God loves you more than you can imagine, and that one of his good gifts to you is his moral law. And a part of that moral law is to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. In verse 18, he goes on with the second warning, let no one disqualify you. Now we start to get even more descriptive. Uh, Most scholars think that he's going after one particular person here, and you can understand why they think this when he's describing what they've been teaching, and he gets very personal with a, a, a pronoun here, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Yeah, Paul's talking about somebody here. He has someone in particular in mind that he is describing here. This person insists on the worship of angels, on asceticism. He talks about uh, on and on about his visions that he's having. He's puffed up. He's arrogant. He's not humble. He speaks without reason, just kind of just talks, and his mind is sensuous, meaning that what drives him are his desires. That's how he functions. And it's unfortunate that many of us can think of modern-day false teachers who fit this description. We have to be on guard against it. For us to assume that Paul had so much to say about false teachers in these letters to these young churches for us to consider and think that we are not going to encounter these. And they're not just necessarily ones who would stand in front of, in, in a pulpit or come through on a TV. Uh, sometimes they can be people that, that try and, 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 and influence you just on a personal level. You have to be on guard. I love how Eugene Peterson captures this in, in his paraphrase the message. Don't tolerate people who try to run your life, ordering you to bow in a scrape, insisting that you join their obsession with angels and that you seek out visions. There are a lot of hot air. That's all they are. I think he gets it. In verse 19, Paul explains why this false teacher is the way that he is. He has not held fast to the head, that is, to Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, This false teacher is not functioning in union with Christ. He's gone off on his own. He's AWOL. He's been deceived or he has deceived himself and he is now relying on his own mind, his own thoughts, his sensuous mind, Paul uh, describes. So this is something that he is seeking his own benefit. What pleases him, what benefits him. And he will use you as his tool to get to those ends. He's seeking his will and his pleasure rather than God's will and God's pleasure. And as a result of not holding fast, he has lost the nourishment as well as the connection. You, to, 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 to Christ and also to his body, you and I were not saved to be in isolation. 
We were designed not only to be in union in Christ, but part of being in union in Christ is connected to his body. We were designed to live life together, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, to bear one another's burdens, but also to to encourage one another, to sing songs, to speak into other people's lives, to exhort, to correct, to rebuke and instruct in righteousness. We need the connection not only to the head in Jesus, but we need the connection that is reflected in the body in the church. So don't let anyone intimidate you, Paul's saying, with their religiosity or their seeming spiritual gifts, because the gifts of the Holy Spirit are always marked by true humility and are a source of blessing to everyone, not something that stirs up strife and jealousy. The gifts of the Spirit don't stir up strife and jealousy. In the final uh, four verses, we see Paul kind of summarize, as he did in the last section, nailing the point home there. He does this again um, in verses, uh, in, in the last four verses, verse 20. Another way to say what he says here is, you, you've died to these elemental spirits of the world, these patterns, these habits, these outward works, so you don't need to add them back in. These worldly restrictions and regulations. That's not what you've been saved unto. Again, I like how Peterson captures it. This is what he, how he treats this passage in Colossians. So then, if with Christ you've put all that pretentious and infantile religion behind you, why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. Do you think that things that are here today and gone tomorrow are worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if sound in a deep enough voice. They give the illusion of being pious and humble and ascetic, but they're just another way of showing off, making yourselves look important. Don't fall for it. Don't get caught up in it. These humid attempts at righteousness are not righteous at all, and they will not help you deal with the temptations either. But instead... We are called to remember what Paul has been saying all along. And let me say this in summary, that one, Christ in you is your hope. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Not yourselves, not your performance, not your actions. It is Christ. Strive for all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That is what you're to go after. Go after Christ. We talk about it's a personal relationship. That's right. It's not a checklist. It's not a things of do's or don'ts. Go after Him. Pursue Him. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you haven't heard, yeah, I'm just going through these verses in Colossians that we've, already, that we've already studied and just reading them back to you. So walk in Christ, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith. Walk in Him. And in Christ dwells the whole fullness of deity, and you have been filled in Him. Nail that one to the forehead, right? I mean, how can I remember that? In Christ is all the fullness of the, de- of the deity, and I am filled with Him. I don't need to add anything else to that. In fact, if I am full, I cannot add anything else. So don't fall for the smooth speech and the charismatic personalities and the spit-polished look because in Christ you have everything you could ever need. Seek Him. Paul summarizes this in another letter, and I'd like to close by just reading a passage from Ephesians today because this is how he prays for the Ephesian believers. He says, For this reason... 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you want to know what it looks like to pursue Christ, to go after him, Come back to this passage in Ephesians. This is what it looks like. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for your family. Pray this for one another in this church that we would be able to know and understand the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ and to know that we are secure in Him. That His work that is finished, that is complete, does it all. It's finished. Let's pray. Father, that we would not only know this in our heads, but that you would drill this down in our hearts, that we would actually live according to this truth, not trying as the little legalist inside of us is trying to lead us to do things to merit your favor, but resting in the complete merit of Jesus alone. Would you do that work in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit? We need it, Lord, because as soon as we walk out of here, we're going to forget this. Somebody's going to cut us off. We're going to get a phone call. We're going to remember that task that's due or what's waiting for us at work this week. And we're going to forget. Lord, remind us. Change us. Transform us. So that we then would be that reflected glory. Not only made in your image, but redeemed by Christ. That others would see our good works and glorify you in heaven. Be pleased to do this in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.